this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I am talking today with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. Hey, Emily. I think she's frozen. So Emily will join us in a second. Hey, I also want to welcome Tim Wessel, who is an independent candidate for state Senate for Wyndham County. Hello, Tim. Hi, Olga. Hi, Emily. Thanks for inviting me. And Emily is unfrozen. So hello again, Emily. Hello. So nice to see you. Good morning. (laughs) Ah, the internet in Vermont. For those who may not know Tim, he is a select board member in Brattleboro. He is also owner of Vermont Films. So he is, I actually think that's how we met many, many years ago, Tim, is through our media connections. So yay, media. Yay, media. Go media. (laughs) He is also a co-owner of some apartment buildings in Brattleboro. And very pertinent to this conversation, uh, we'll talk about childcare today. He is also a father and a husband of, and they have his, he and his wife have a small child who is very cute, but um, it has brought the issue of childcare to the foreground for Tim in uh, probably ways it never had before. Absolutely. Tim, I have one question that I'm asking all candidates before we dive in. And that's, you know, there are so many ways to serve your, your community. Mm-hmm. And you have been serving as an elected official f- at the local level as a select board member for several years now. Five and a half. Five and a half. Wow. Time yeah. just flies by. And I'm, I'm curious, with all the candidates, why did you choose to take that path of elected service and why now are you taking that next step to um, run for Senate? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. You know, for me, uh, and I'm going back to when I decided to run for select board, but even before that, I was serving uh, several years as a town meeting rep. And I really thought that uh, I had a voice, I had some reason and some ability to listen to people and be able to, um, you know, sometimes bridge gaps between people when they disagree. Uh, I thought I had some skills in that area. Turns out when I joined the select board, I didn't have as many skills as I thought I did, uh, because you really uh, get thrown into a whole different world when you're on a select board. Um, But over the years, I realized that I should have had more confidence and, and I do have pretty good abilities to navigate conflicts and to be able to uh, move forward with uh, finding the policies that our community really want to. Um, what, I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to, uh, to volunteer and to serve your community. Uh, I'm actually tonight, I'm in Putney talking about service generally uh, the way my father served our country and his community and then the way I served I decided to not go towards the military that, like he did, but there's just there's so many ways to serve, um, and I think the that's the long answer, obviously. But the short answer is I I felt like I could be good at it, and I feel like I'm good at representing mm-hmm. my community. And what is it about uh, the Senate? Because so many seats opened up uh, for this yeah. election. You know yeah. why the Senate? Well, a couple of uh, there's a there, you know, the main practical reason is that I'd been sort of eyeing, you know, serving in a higher capacity for several years, probably three years, um, but waiting for a moment, excuse me, that that really felt like there was going to be a seat open, at least one seat, is when I started to get the idea that, well, there's definitely going to be a Senate seat open. So, and a lot of that is in deference to our existing, um, people who are serving on the House side, I feel like we have three very good uh, representatives on the House side. One of them is here with us. So that's sort of the practical why. But the more, uh, you know, Tim why is that I spent a lot of time sitting in both the House and the Senate chambers. And the way my brain works, the way my personal interactions work, I felt like I would be more of use to my 
constituents in the Senate. It just it's something about a vibe of, of the way they're able to communicate a little more seamlessly and in a closer closer body, basically, with only 30 members. So that's the that's the answer is I, I really feel like the Senate is somewhere where I can um, shine a little better. OK, thank you. We want to dive into policies and issues around childcare in this conversation. And for our listeners, if you go back into the Wayback Machine, and I will try to link them in the show notes, I believe Chloe Leary has was one of our early guests years ago now to talk about childcare. And she is the executive director of Winston Prouty. And I think she was the one who really put it on my radar many years ago, talking about childcare and how it's an economic and workforce issue as much as it is an educational issue for our, you know, and a care issue for our, our children. I'm curious, um, before I go to you, Tim, I want to hear from you, Emily, how have you seen this issue evolve? Because I think it's been a long, slow arc. We've done some good things, but there was a report that came out that the state had commissioned or the legislature had commissioned saying that our systems are still out of whack. You know, we're, how have you seen this evolve? Yeah. And I am, you know, one of the reasons I'm looking forward to talking to Tim about this is um, Tim actually has two children. Yes. One of them is much older than the other one. And so I'm curious about, um, I had a child in between Tim's two children. And so I'm really curious about like what the differences have been in terms of accessing childcare in those two different capacities. So I, let's see, where do I start? My professional career, the last few years before I ran for office, I actually worked in the early childhood system statewide. So I worked for the Agency of Human Services for the Child Development Division, doing community organizing around creating communities where young children and parents of young children could thrive. And then I worked at Building Bright Futures, which um, as the director of the Early Childhood Action Plan, which is the statewide um, Building Bright Futures, sort of the statewide coalition that is a partners with the state to be the voice of early childhood throughout Vermont. And it's created through statute. And they have a very close partner in Let's Grow Kids, which I imagine that most of our listeners has heard, have heard about and Tim's wife is quite involved with. And Let's Grow Kids has been, is an extraordinarily well-funded and well-run essentially advocacy agency that has been pushing this conversation further and further into the forefront of our political minds for almost a decade now in order to change the conversation around early childhood in Vermont, because we were, everyone involved in the system could see that we were nearing a crisis point. And I mean, parents as well, in terms of involved in the system, but it was not something that was on people's political mind, partly because our legislature definitely, you know, is much older than the population of Vermont. And Vermont is actually, you know, we don't have as many parents of young children as some other communities do. So what is Vermont as a state for a very long time and still has, tends to have less families with two parents in the workforce than most other states. Part of that, and we've talked about that when we've talked about labor shortages, on the show before, that it's not just that we don't have enough humans or enough qualified humans, that we have a lot of people that are choosing not to enter the workforce in Vermont for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of those reasons, like there's a lot of cultural reasons around that. And like people move here because they want things to be slower and more family friendly and blah, blah, blah. And like everyone wants time to can and kayak. But the bigger reason is that because partly because our wages are so low here in Vermont, and a few other reasons, we have a lot of folks who are choosing to only have one parent in the workforce because it doesn't actually pay to have two parents in the workforce. So if your entire wage space is going towards childcare, why yeah. would you not why would you not stay home? Yeah. Except for the fact that, you know, I was a single parent and so needed to work regardless. But if you don't I, you know, I was working part-time, all of those 
hours that you give up to care for your kids are hours that you never get back in terms of advancing your career, in terms of your social security, in terms of your retirement plan. So even if families are making those choices short term because they serve everyone better, it's actually not usually in women's best long-term financial interest to be making decisions like that. So there's like that little part of the childcare puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. It's too expensive for families. Yeah. And then, which has like all kinds of ripple on effects. And then there's the, should I keep on going with like laying out the problem or is this like way too much? No, go ahead. Okay. Okay. So then there's the fact that there are not enough childcare providers in Vermont. And there's some reasons for that. So we have a shortage of childcare providers, which means we have a shortage of slots. So even if families can find the money to pay for childcare, they actually can't find the childcare they need not enough spots for kids to go in. And it's like a pretty massive shortage that's been growing over time. One of the reasons for the shortage is that we pay terribly to these mm-hmm. childcare providers. Yeah. Most and of them make minimum wage. Yet require very, a lot of education and a lot of certification, yeah. which is expensive. A lot of education, a lot of certification. So that's sort of the quality conundrum right there, right? It's the affordable, high quality childcare. So the high quality childcare means you want people who know something about children to be doing this work with your children because this is the time in a child's in a person's life where their brain is like doing all of the magical things that make them the person that they are all kinds of synapses forming blah 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 brain science i'm sure everyone's seen the commercials about that so we are moving very brains are developing really fast you want high quality childcare, so you want the person qualified to be doing the work but you also want them paid a living wage not just so they'll show up for work which is important really important to have people actually in those jobs. But if someone is living in the kind of chronic poverty that they live in because they are not making a living wage, the level of chronic stress they are going to experience as a result of that chronic low wage is not the kind of stress that you want someone who is caring for our most vulnerable Vermonters to be living through because the patients and the attentiveness that is required to do a good job caring for children is practically impossible when you're living under that level of chronic stress. So need good wages and you need good education. So those are sort of, right? So you need affordable. Absolutely. You need accessible for the parents. You need accessible. You need enough slots for everyone. And you need it to be high quality, which means you need to pay living wages. You put all those things together, you get like, what is clearly a market failure? How could that not be a market failure, right? Mm-hmm. So, but we have this system that's like basically entirely privatized, except for historically, lower income families could access financial aid from what was essentially federal money that flowed through to the state. That's called CCFAP. It's the Child Care Financial Assistance Program. So Emily, thank you for this rundown, but I do want to make sure um, we hear from Tim too. So um, any other quick bits of information you want people to have before? We passed a massive piece of legislation to get at that three, whatever, what's it called? A stool? Three-legged stool. Yep. Um, which was Act 45, last biennium. And there's going to be a lot of implications for that next biennium that we can talk about in a little bit. Fantastic. So, Tim, as someone who is um, actively parenting a younger child, or I want to go back actually to the point Emily made, you're actively parenting a younger child, and then your older child, I believe, is in his 20s or 30s now? He's 32. Oh my gosh. I haven't seen him in years. Um, So what has been the difference um, between um, those two age groups when, when seeking childcare? Well, you know, so when we, that my young uh, older son, my taller son, as I like to refer to him as my much taller son uh, is 32, lives out in uh, Arizona does pretty much his own thing, but very lovely person. Um, That was a very different time in my life. Uh, We actually, when we moved to Vermont, which was right around 2000, we were homeschooling. We had divided labor very traditionally. I was making pretty much all of the income. My wife, former wife at the time, his mother was... um, was really taking the bulk of the care duties, including homeschooling. Mm-hmm. 
So, and he was already, by the time we got here, he's already 11, 12, something like that. <laughs> I have to do the math. So it's a much different picture in a way, but what's, what's very in, informative to me is that we were in Putney in the woods. Um, so it was a different experience when talking to neighbors about their own struggles, which were going on even back then. Um, and, but when I, when I sort of hit this crazy restart button with a new relationship and a new child, that's when I experienced the unique conundrum of early childhood mm-hmm. care and, uh, accessibility. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not dodging the question. It's just that it was very apples and oranges, and especially because of where I was at, you know, where we were at, where we are are now is in a situation where we're we're both making uh, incomes. My wife and I both work. Uh, we both parent much more uh, directly and share those duties very directly. I won't claim that I have you know fifty percent of the share, but uh, I do you know, my best to get close to that. Um, And uh, we experienced, uh, well, we went through the pandemic and during, in the middle of the pandemic, while I was chair of the select board, we lost our daycare. We, uh, in, in here in Brattleboro, Vermont, the landlord of the daycare center said, no more. We don't want to, we don't want to host you. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be the landlord for a daycare program. So it it literally did uh, close and we lost, you know, we ended up losing 80% of the caregivers because they instantly are starting to scramble for new jobs. Most of the parents were starting to scramble for new places, couldn't find them. We were very lucky because we had connections already and like started to call immediately places and considered sending our son to a private Catholic school um, because we were pretty impressed with what they do and, and the people there. But in the, at the last moment, we were able with a group of parents to really, you know, make some calls and do a lot of advocacy and got another local childcare provider interested in taking over the program sort of as is with some changes, but in the same location, more Mm -hmm. importantly. And so that was, you know, talk about stress. And and Emily, I I actually really loved your, um, your description of every of the entire problem, because all of that was just exacerbated during the pandemic, as, Mm -hmm. as we all know, we all dealing with all kinds of emotions around the pandemic and feeling cooped up and all that stuff. And on top of that, we have this closure and it's not like it's gotten that much better. We have, we have a certain amount of, we're just so grateful that the, the teachers are being as supported as they can be right now with the new uh, directors and the new owners of this program. But it, all, it, it still feels like at any moment we could lose the teacher we love to another job. Um, we've seen teachers move to different careers, which is when you see talent in a, in a educator, especially an early educator, just loves kids, loves interacting with your own son. And you see them make the decision to do something else, which, you know, they'll be good at whether, you know, a couple of them move to healthcare, you know, because there's a lot of good jobs in healthcare that pay better than early education slots. Um, It's just, it was, it continues to be heartbreaking for my wife and I. I'm curious, Tim, I know every, every family's experience is different. And for some, it might be a financial issue. For some, it might be an access issue. But what is it on a policy level, um, especially if you are elected to Senate, that to the Senate, what is it that, that you feel on a policy level needs to happen? Well, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know everything about um, childcare on the policy level that Emily does, for instance, which is why it's so great actually having her here in this conversation. Uh, thank you, by the way, for your advocacy on 171, which I, I'm picking up that turned into Act 84, 85, or no, 40, 40. 45, which I only know because I looked it up right before the call. It's not like I have <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like that 
prop five. That yeah, no, it's all weird. it's very yeah. Anyway, um, thank you for that because on a policy level, I at the moment I feel like I'm qualified mainly to talk about big picture. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely qualified to talk about my energy and enthusiasm for working on this problem and continuing the good work that's happened. Um, but more importantly, I feel like I could be very good at speaking to a big picture discussion about why do we see, we have, we have embraced as a society that, that we should be paying for public schools, right? Mm-hmm. That it benefits everybody because it doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative. If, if you're liberal, I mean, I would say that like you have sort of a moral obligation to make sure these these students grow up to be good people and and uh, worthy people get worthy work. I like that phrase. But on a, even on, from a conservative standpoint, you could say, well, these people are going to grow up and pay taxes. You know, so just from a numbers perspective, we really have to support public education, whether or not you're going to have a child. And that conversation is something that I'm very fascinated with. I've actually had just in the last few days, some really intense conversations with some conservative friends of mine. And I said, why is it that uh, we have this, we have this acceptance of five and up or six and up, whatever, kindergarten and up being something that, that public funds should definitely support. But we have this idea that zero to five, zero to six should not be supported or you're kind of just on your own until you can graduate to the to the public financing end of things it's a huge problem in a state like vermont where you have people who really want to be here and together with housing that's their biggest issues and that's why i mean when i when i declare back in february um i people ask me what are your big three issues and i said well i've got two big ones and I'll figure out the third <laughs> because I talk about childcare because I'm so, you know, in, in, in the fight of it or was, well, still am, but also housing from my perspective and dealing with it on the select board and struggling with it and figuring mm-hmm. out what to do on a local municipal limited level and what to do about housing. So, and it's a one, two punch to a state with our population numbers when you want to attract people you want to retain people that want to have kids mm-hmm. and you want them to have kids because as the conservatives would say, they grow up to pay taxes and support everyone. Mm-hmm. So I forget where we started. Oh, you, you asked me about specific policy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, really- I, I guess I have a sense of what the big policy questions in front of us are going to be this biennium. And so I'm curious your thoughts on it. Olga, I have like a looming sense that we're coming up on a break. Yeah. So we, we also save it for after the break. I, I actually, I think that would be a good plan. Yeah. Emily can tell when I start looking at the clock being like, eh. um, yeah, so yeah, sure. we're just going to quickly stop there, but hang, uh, hang tight, everybody. The Montpelier happy hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station will return in a moment. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV as well as many of the PEG stations around the state. Wherever you find your podcasts, our Facebook page, YouTube, and our um, our website, <laughs> the Montpelier Happy Hour. Captivate.fm. Emily, what do we need to remind people of? Well, as a matter of fact, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor the platform, nor their employers or friends or family, just the people talking. Yes, it's always a good thing to remember. We were talking, uh, and if you're just joining us, I'm talking with candidate for state Senate, Tim Wessel, as well as regular contributor representative Emily Kornheiser, and we're talking about childcare. And right before the break, we were looking at some of the policy changes or big picture policies that Tim might be interested in if he is elected as an independent to the state Senate. 
So let's pick that up there. Emily, you had said that you're aware of some of the big policy questions. Did you have a follow-up question to Tim? Yeah. So we, um, when we passed H-171, which is now Act 45, it essentially laid out a roadmap to creating an affordable, accessible, quality childcare system in Vermont. And so that was easy to pass in some ways because it was aspirational. I don't, I mean, I was the lead sponsor on it. It wasn't necessarily easy to work through all the details, which the Human Services Committee did, but it was aspirational. And so it didn't contain, it contained the seeds of some tough decisions, but it did not require tough decisions in the moment. But it's there and it, we are sort of required to follow through on it. And so two pieces of it were a childcare governance study, which came out earlier this summer mm-hmm. um, and childcare financing study, which is going to come out in December. So the governance study pointed to some real longstanding problems, which in the world of public administration, you know, it's actually not a wicked problem in the world of public administration. It's just like a longstanding bureaucracy problem that no one seems to be able to solve, though it's probably solvable, which is essentially that when we passed the universal pre-K, which provides sort of an extra subsidy for older young children, right? For three and four year olds um, at 10 hours a week, which like drop in the dumb bucket right there, Mm -hmm. nice and all, but like doesn't actually make a, it's not like a sea change in terms of people's access. Um, That was put under the auspices of the Agency of Education. However, Childcare, including the rest of the subsidy, which is um, income-based, CCFAP, and the regulatory mechanisms, the most of the regulatory mechanisms for childcare sit in the Agency of Human Services. And so, and our childcare system is called a mixed delivery model, which means that some private providers and some public providers, and they all sort of swim in the same sea in a way that's sort of different from our um, K-12 system, though that is also slightly mixed in some districts. So basically ever since that happened, AOE and AHS just sort of like fight about stuff and like don't align their paperwork. And it's just like kind of a mess for anyone who tries to engage with it. And so that's what the governance study was about. The governance study pointed to a solution that as someone who sort of worked in the system, don't, I don't actually think it will make any difference at all. It was just like to add an extra person who's more in charge, but still has to coordinate the two offices to create like a czar of sorts. But that aside, that's one of the problems. The other problem um, or the other policy conversation that's gonna be like deeply on the table and I wanna ask you about Tim is essentially the childcare financing study is gonna come out. It's gonna say we need millions and millions and millions of dollars in order to create a system of affordable accessible childcare. And what that money will be spent on is two things. It's raising wages in the childcare system, essentially up to the level of public school teacher education pay and compensation. We already have set up a system of scholarships and financial aid for early care and education providers. So that's sort of already happening, but likely more money will be needed for that in the future. And then it sets a maximum amount of money that a family is required to spend. So it expands the financial aid mechanism for early care and education um, from sort of CCFAP, which was designed mostly for low income families bringing it all the way up like through middle-class families to like around $100,000 a year of income. Um, and that families won't be required to pay more than a fairly small fraction of their annual income for childcare. 10%. So all that to say, sorry, what? I'm sorry. I, I, I've heard the number 10%. Yes. Being about, so. Yeah. so all that to say, we're going to need to find a whole lot of dollars this next session. Like that's going to be the conversation on the table who is going to pay and how much are they going to pay to make the system work? And we sort of made a promise that we're going to find that money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might be through a payroll tax. It might be through a wealth tax. It might be through, there's all kinds of options about where you raise money, but it's like a really, it's not like pennies that, you know, there's like mm-hmm. some policies that are just like, you know, pennies you can find on the couch of like, you know, the Department of Financial Regulation. This is not going to be one of those. And so there are conversations about, is this going to just be integrated into the public school system, which could save the governance problem? There already is an existing funding pool for that. 
but that would raise property taxes a lot and would sort of remove the mixed delivery model or expand the mixed delivery model into the K-12 system, who knows? And then there's, is it a payroll tax? Who pays a payroll tax? Who's willing to pay a payroll tax? All of that. So Tim, what, like, what would you be willing to do? What would you want to do? Like what, how much does this mean to our community that like we have, we're going to need to say yes to really pooling our resources as communities in order to cover these costs. We have lots of businesses that have agreed that like, yes, they're up for the challenge, but I don't know if they still will be when the rubber hits the road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't know enough yet to know how I feel like is the, uh, what's the best path, path to take to, to finance this. Um, I think the financing study is going to be very informative of, you know, giving us an idea of the current status and the directions we should go. And honestly, I mean, I'm very familiar with budgets and how you really need to examine budgets to see where there's inefficiencies. You're kind of implying that, you know, there's not a lot of low hanging fruit or inefficiencies to tap into, but we really have to examine priorities. The biggest problem with this discussion is you have to speak from the 10,000 foot level while also looking at the, how do we pay for this level? I think it has to be gradual. It doesn't, it shouldn't be too gradual, but it has to be gradual enough so that you can simultaneously have these conversations about, you know, it's an economic driver, I think, to have good childcare, uh, reliable, well-supported uh, childcare providers. So we have to start framing it that way and get out of this 1950s, 60s, even 70s sort of idea that well, you know, women aren't working, so they can take up the slack until you get to age six. You know, I mean, I think that's why we think of under five and over five as two separate things. Mm -hmm. As like on some level, we're still in like barefoot, pregnant in the kitchen. Mind. Yes, yeah, and that's that's a huge problem because we can't, you know, as a government, as as a society, we have to react to changing economic conditions. And the reality now is that most well, all lower, you know, poorer people and middle-class people are pretty much forced to have a two-wage earner household. That's just the reality of it. And our gestalt as a society, our, our feeling that our students need that support, you know, pretty much right from the beginning. You know, you could make an argument for like, right, you know, our, our son went into his childcare program as part of the reason we love it so much is he's been there since three months. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, for me, I mean, I'm a little older, so because I've had that experience before in my previous. So for me, I was sort of shocked at that idea. Three months. Are you kidding me? I mean, this and handing him over to somebody, but it was so good for him. I, I can tell you that like, it just, you can just see them blossom when they get to interact with other people uh, who are not just mom and dad or just, you know, at that stage, it, it's usually just mom. It, it was, it's so valuable. And so like people on the level of, of having the kids, they know this reality. I feel like as a society, we haven't caught up with the reality of what we need to do. Housing may be very similar in, in some ways. There's a lot of parallels to it, mm -hmm. which is why I keep talking about, you know, how, how similar they are and how integral both are. You need a roof over your head and you need to be able to work, essentially. And to be able to work, you need childcare. So, you know, I, I'm, I can't look at, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of, um, thank goodness, for Let's Grow Kids, you mentioned that they're really well-funded and well-organized some of their charts that they produce are just like brilliantly done, I think, because, you know, they talk about, you know, what, what got done and what still has to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know that the capacity passed in, I think it was part of 171 where the capacity like to bring up infants and child infant and toddler care was like under a million dollars for that portion of things. Whereas retention bonuses were like seven million, I haven't. I made a note of this last night. 
childcare assistance, 5 million, dependent care credit, three and a half million. So, you know, I, I've got to get in the fight to be able to really feel like I could say, it's this policy that we have to change. And this is our path to going forward. Um, but I'm really grateful for the, the work that's already been done. And I'll, I'll be able to learn so much as I bring myself up to speed and how to plug in. Um, but I think for now, what I really want to talk about with everyone is let's start changing our attitude towards the value and the economic value. And this isn't just about, you know, doing the right thing or the moral thing for people who are struggling and for childcare providers. It's about making our state successful. So that's what I like to talk about because, because I haven't read the childcare financing study, the, the governance study yet. Um, I really, I, I think right now my role is to really talk about our overall embracing of the new reality of parenting and working, you know, in 2022. I, I appreciate you saying that, Tim, because I, I think one thing we have talked about on the show a lot is the stories that then build policy, that we build policy off of. And sometimes those po- stories are spot on and sometimes they're not. They're based on old stories that may actually not be relevant anymore. And I, one, one thing I keep hearing come up as in the, in the story vein around early child care is this idea, especially for women around choices that they make that, well, they chose to have a child and therefore it means X, Y, Z, or they have the choice to work and stay home. It's, it's, it's always like coming back on the choices that I hear mostly on the mom. Um, And I think I hear that mainly because being female, and I hear these stories from other females, and I so I, I don't think it's um a totally scientific process that I'm I'm hearing through. But I keep I just keep marveling at that of of this these issues are coming down to the mom's choice rather than the economic realities that we are all living in and the systemic realities that we are all living in. Um, I'm curious, either of you have, have kind of a response to that. Well, I, I do. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the idea of that choice. And I mean, I guess you might, from a conservative perspective, you might say, well, you know, they've made their choice. They wanted to have the kid. You know, nobody asked them to have the kid. So, OK, let's take it the other way. They, they could have chosen not to have children. And then where is your thriving society? Like, is that what we want? Do we want, you know, parents that want to have kids and they have skills and they could be good parents to their children or even adopting children, making the choice not to have kids because they don't feel like they'll be supported? You know, that's that's pretty harsh. That would be a choice that might not make conservatives happy either. Tim, I appreciate that you do this thing where you like lay out the conservative viewpoint and the liberal viewpoint. I want to know what your viewpoint is. Well, uh, my viewpoint is that that uh, we have to move towards full support. As we look at education, we ne- we have to move that bar down the age range and and support, you know, maybe not from birth, but very soon after birth so that we don't have this situation where three months to five years is a problem for families and everybody and the economic success of a, of a state. So I'm, I'm clearly for changing our society's ideas about funding Mm -hmm. of education and including lower age ranges, because it just makes no sense as it's currently configured. Thank you. But I just, just, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that you noticed that, but I do feel like sometimes on, especially in Wyndham County, you know, the conversation can be among Democrats, you know, it, it tends to be, you know, I, I love to include people who I know are going to be partners in at least one aspect of the problem, because that's, I think, how you're going to get things done quickly without it crashing against a, 
Governor Vito, maybe, or or just a rejection from society who haven't been brought along with the overall idea that, yes, this is good for us. I, I compared it to uh, libraries, you know, the other day to a conservative friend of mine. And and they were like, well, you know, libraries. Yes, we we get that. I, I feel like my tax dollars should go to libraries, even when I'm not checking out many books. But childcare is very different. And that's when that choice idea came up, Olga, that you mentioned. And so I just love to tease at that. And every time we're having this conversation, I, I do like to talk about both conservative viewpoints and liberal viewpoints and far left and far right, because I believe that's the best way to get things done for, you know, to get it, to get policy going and have it be successful. Mm-hmm. We have just a little over 10 minutes, so I'm just giving that as a time check. We've talked a lot about childcare, Tim, but I'm also asking every candidate, you know, we want a Vermont, I believe we want a Vermont that works for everybody. And it, it makes me curious if there was a policy lever you could pull, whether it's childcare or another one, which what policy would you like to see put in place that you feel would just make Vermont work better for everybody? You get one. That's the, you, you only get one of mm-hmm. Olga's question. You only get one. And, it and has that to be- drives Emily crazy. And it has to be, cause I think the world is a deeply interconnected place. It and so- is. However, I'm going to argue why I keep asking this question. Cause it drives Emily crazy is I feel sometimes when we're looking at all the interconnectedness, we sometimes don't have a starting point. And sometimes if you can see like where people are passionate, you then you can find where they start connecting. So that's why I asked that question. And you also can't just say like, I'd fix housing. Cause like who wouldn't, but like, how do you fix housing, right? Like no, no one actually knows the well, answer. That's just that me problem. putting you on the spot. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. also drives Emily crazy, I suspect. Oh, I like that part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so one, I mean, because my brain right now is just so totally into the childcare thing. And to be fair, I, um, you know, that's, that's number one, the number one thing I talk about, uh, followed closely by housing. I really would say that if I could flip a switch, pull a lever, uh, and it would be magically at this point, but magically have a policy that takes care of the, Childcare and daycare, you know, educational needs, sorry, childcare and, and educational needs of children be supported from the moment of birth into through high school. I mean, ideally and beyond, but I don't want to go that far because that's that's what we've been talking about this entire hour, right? That's what I would flip a switch and fix. Um, there we just need to be able to get there. We just need all of our citizens to really be on board with what I've been talking about. And just Mm -hmm. that support needs to happen from the moment because it's not only a choice of parents to have kids, it could be a choice for them not to have kids. And we don't want that either. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) we need to support both choices, you know? Yeah. I, and I want to just be explicit that we've been talking about childcare, but I also feel one thing that's missing in the childcare system, or not missing, but is perhaps not as robust as perhaps people need, is we still have this disconnect, even with education, that so many jobs are nine to five. Mm-hmm. And yet school does not go nine to five. But then so many people may work shift work. Or they, they have a job where maybe it's it's 48 hours on and then, you know, three days off or something like that. It's it's not a tra- like a traditional set hours. And we often don't have a lot of child care system for folks who maybe work the overnight shift or are firefighters and, you know, or nurses. And they have those days on and then those days off. Um, and, and I'm wondering, has that crossed either of your radars at all? Yeah. And before I answer that question, I just want to say, like, in order to do what you're saying, Tim, we need to raise taxes. 
And like, I think it's at the point in the conversation in Vermont where we need to actually start saying that out loud or we're never going to get like, there's only so long you can wait before you like sneak. I don't want to sneak that up on people. Like Mm -hmm. that's the next step. It's to raise taxes in order to pay to meet everyone's childcare needs. That's the only, that's what the financing study is. It's what taxes are we going to raise for that? Um, Because that's the main mechanism the state has to. That's how we, that's how we pay for things. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's the deal. That's what civilization is. And so I'm just like, I'm, that's what I'm doing this fall. I'm saying it out loud so that we can actually get it done in January. Um, in terms of shift work, Brattleboro actually had a um, early care and education mm-hmm. center that was available for folks who did shift work. It did not actually have enough people um, attending and had staffing problems. And it closed quite a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. There are a few other pilots for it around the state that have done it off and on. Um, we have a scale problem in Vermont. You might mm-hmm. have both noticed that before. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of challenges with that. Like it's just not enough people who work those off shifts and want their kid to be sleeping somewhere else. So most people who work shift work um, do actually have a preference for their kid being cared for in their home mm-hmm. um, rather than somewhere else and make that work. And we could really adapt to what folks want in that context rather than um, in some larger places, you know, next to a hospital, it might, that kind of thing makes sense. Um, but we can't, it's really not scalable in Vermont to be doing that kind of thing. I do also, I wonder if, uh, if and Emily, you might have um, more knowledge on this, obviously. Uh, but I was speaking to a current rep and they were referring to some rules that were passed six or seven years ago about home childcare and small childcare setups. And they implied that the, uh, the state might've gone a little too far on the regulation department. And I, you know, I don't want to call that rep out just because I didn't get the full story. So I can't really, yeah. like, can you comment on that? Or? Yeah, there's, um, there are some folks in the state house that think that our childcare shortage is because of home care providers being sort of subject to newer regulations and bailing from the market. But Mm -hmm. in fact, we've actually seen the exact same churn in folks home. Generally people provide home care while their kids are of an age that that would make sense for them. Mm -hmm. And then they stop and new people come into it. What we've seen is that we aren't seeing the same number of new people entering the market rather than that we're seeing more people leaving. And most folks think who are like experts at this think that's because of just a change in like the general economic situation at work and not so much because of the increased regulatory stuff. The regulations are really like designed just to keep people safe. I think like any regulation, the child development division could be doing a better job as with all of our state divisions in Vermont could be doing a much better job to offer a positive regulatory framework where they're really assisting folks in getting their regulatory needs met. But I do actually think that's one a division that generally does a better job of that than some others, like say ANR, sorry, ANR. And so, you know, all of the conversations that we've had about like Department of Financial Regulation or Act 250 or like any of those things all apply to the context of regulation in childcare facilities, but they are like sort of necessary for safety. And we've seen children die in childcare facilities in Vermont before because of safety concerns. So yeah. I, um, I think that's like an urban, a rural myth. What do we call urban myths in a rural? Can we just call them rural myths? Is that, can I just like that find works. that? Term? Okay. That works. <laughs> I think that needs to be our cocktail, rural myths. Ooh. <laughs> yes. I, I made the mistake of looking at the clock, but I was going to go off. And and on the taxes thing, I mean, I think, number one, that's, you know, of course, a brave political position in many ways. But you could probably look back on some things I've written, one of which was actually entitled Taxes Are Good. And it was meant to be provocative, but also lay out like, look, let's all get involved in what we feel our tax dollars should be going to if mm-hmm. you want to just take the existing tax rates. Um, but also like what else would be good for all of us to, if we're going to increase taxes, I think the main for, for the 80% of the middle, I, I like to think about like 80% of, of the middle of, of political thought that happens everywhere. I think it's, it's reasonable concerns that the more you raise taxes, the more 
it's going to go to bureaucracy, et cetera, or, or things we don't need. Well, let's have the conversation about things we think are good for us to pay for, mm-hmm. right? We, we've already agreed on, on fire departments, police forces to some degree, um, uh, on- uh, Roads, roads. I think roads. roads is sort of the classic, the pothole. And I imagine- yeah. board. I'm always grateful when someone writes to me about the roads and I say, you should talk to the select board. Um, <laughs> I- Porta potties, you know. No, yes. Should we should we spend money on porta potties? And you know, it's it's a tough fight that's you know going to happen in every community possibly. But we could all decide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, people should be able to go to the bathroom anytime. And I think particularly, it's easy easier in the case of something like child care and education, early care and education, to be saying that if we put our resources towards this collectively, it will pay off for us not just in human dividends, but in sort of you know, money will save down the road, more revenues coming into the state, more people entering the workforce, more young people moving here, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, well, and also, you know, with taxes, there is the, those questions of there, there are things in our tax law that probably need to be updated or changed or, or refined. And yet we also need to be cognizant of the fact that as a state, we tend to have a low population. We tend to have a population that's been underpaid for years, Mm-hmm. You know, our wages being so low. And so but yet when we pay for our roads, we're getting our asphalt or our gas from economies that aren't necessarily Vermont's. And so they're paying higher wages, they're paying higher taxes. And so we also need to ask, like, do we have enough people even paying the taxes? Mm-hmm. And if we had higher wages, we had more people, would our taxes feel as as hard as they are? Yeah. There's always that aspect as well. We are just a little bit over time. So I just want to check in with Tim and Emily. Anything else you want to leave listeners with before before we head out? No. I mean, my campaign manager would say, make sure you uh, ask people to vote for them. But I'm not going to even do that. (laughs) But how do people get in touch with you if they want to? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, So my email and my website are lined up. I think they're both Tim Wessel, W-E-S-S-E-L-1-L-V-T dot com and at Gmail. So Tim Wessel, V-T at Gmail, Tim Wessel, V-T at uh, dot com, I should say. And I've got the Facebooks, some uh, Instagrams and try to stay away from the Twitters. So okay. are you on the Twitters, you guys on Twitter? I'm on. She is. Yeah. Anyway, then, uh, thank oh, you so much for the talk. I mean, like it was fun as well as educational. Same here, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Emily, where can people find more information if they want to reach out to you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where you'll find links to the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, the phone number, the email address, whatever else you need. Looking forward to connecting to folks. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour will be back on Friday at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Have a great weekend, everyone.